week, and we're looking forward to what the Lord will do in the lives of children this week. This is God's word for us this morning, and here's what God says, Isaiah 52, beginning at verse 13. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and shall be exalted. As many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. So shall he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths because of him. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. You may be seated. Father, thank you for your word. There's no word like your word. Your word is true. It's not just true information. It's by your very spirit, you use your word to transform us. And so we would pray for your work in our midst this morning as we consider these verses. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Last week, we began a short summer study in Isaiah 52 and 53. This also coincides with our summer scripture memory verse. If you're looking for something to do this summer, then uh, let's work on memorizing this passage of God's Word. It, It is so focused upon who Jesus is and what He has done. There's much to cherish here and to build our lives upon. And now we're looking at this passage a segment at a time. Remember I said last week that these 15 verses are comprised of five three-verse stanzas. And so that's our assignment before us is to begin looking at this passage a stanza at a time. And this morning we begin by looking at the first stanza which begins in chapter 52 and entails verses 13, 14, and 15. The other thing I said by way of review that I said last week is um, there's an interesting structure to, this, to these five stanzas. The first stanza and the fifth stanza uh, coincide with each other. There's a parallelism of sorts going on there. Then the second stanza and the fourth stanza um, parallel each other and, and uh, collate with each other. And then the third stanza, it ain't got nobody to hang out with. It's all on its own. It's there by itself. And yet, and yet the way it, it, Old Testament writers did uh, poetical accentuation is that really is what makes it the most important, the central passage. But we're not there yet. We're looking at the first stanza. Uh, and, um, uh, and we'll s- unpack what that is. Two things I want us to think about this morning from Verses 13, 14, and 15, I want us to see something of the suffering servant's superior appearance. And what I mean by appearance in that sense is his arrival, his coming. But then I want us to also look at at the suffering servant's shocking 
appearance. And what I mean by appearance in that sense is the way he looked. The first point I want to make from uh, verse 13 uh, and verse 15. And so in a sense, I'm going to say some things about the first point, then go on to the second point, and then if I'm able to keep myself straight, I'll come back to the first point for verse 15. Does that make sense? So first point, second point, first point. Made sense to be last night, but anyway. Uh, The middle stanzas, two, three, and four, hone in almost exclusively on the suffering of the servant. But the first and the last stanza, so the one that we're going to look at this morning, the first stanza, and we'll see it again in the fifth stanza, the, the, the first and fifth stanza do kind of a balance act. They... They talk about the exaltation of the servant while at the same time talking about the suffering of the servant. And that's really some of the tension that we're going to find all throughout this passage is where we're going to be apt to want to say, no, which one is it? Was this servant humiliated or was this servant exalted? To which... I'm going to find nine different ways of answering the question the same way, yes. He was both exalted and he was humiliated. Let's start with the exaltation because that's where the text starts us with. He, is, he says there in verse 13, Behold, my servant shall act wisely. Now, maybe it goes without saying, and and yet on the other hand, we cannot be vague about these things. This is the prophet Isaiah, some 700 years prior to the arrival of the Lord Jesus Christ, issuing a series of prophecies that nail it down, and pun intended, I guess, but nail it down to the the exact particulars of the life and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. How can a guy 700 plus years in advance accurately describe what will happen to the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, no mere man can do that. And yet the Spirit of God who moves upon these men to write down scripture, well, that poses no problem at all for the Spirit of God to know in advance how these things unfold. And that's what we see playing out here. Isaiah is describing what will happen to Jesus. And and yet, as sure as I say that, what I find intriguing in this whole segment is that when this passage, this morning's passage and and this whole summer uh, passage, when this passage talks about the suffering of the Lord Jesus Christ, it does so in the past tense. And yet when this passage talks about the exaltation of the Lord Jesus Christ, 
it talks about it in the future tense, which is quite intriguing to me because the whole thing is future on one hand, and yet it's, it's the writer's way to kind of help us to differentiate. Are we talking about a humiliation aspect of Christ's life, or are we talking about an exaltation aspect of Christ's life? It makes it easy for us to sort that out because it changes the tense from past to future. So verse 13 is an exaltation passage, and if my rules are correct, it, therefore it's cast in the future tense. Behold, my servant shall act wisely. He shall be high and lifted up and exalted. Now when he says that my servant shall act wisely, I would suggest to you that really what he's already stating is that this servant will be successful. You see, in the Old Testament, and some of you guys are reading along with us in our Bible reading program, we're in the book of Proverbs right now, and there's this interesting correlation throughout the book of Proverbs that if you are wise and act wisely, then there will be a successful outcome for you in your life. That's painting with broad strokes, but that's how the Proverbs paint things. In other words, if you act foolish and you're a fool, then the prospects are not real good for you. In other words, it's, it's making a sharp contrast between wisdom leads to success and foolishness leads to failure. Well, so when he says here that, my, behold, my servant will act wisely, I, 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 I think what he's putting in play here is the notion of wisdom leads to success. So his actions that are informed by his wisdom result in a good outcome. So as we begin to look at the humiliation of the Lord Jesus Christ, it's already been called. The game has already been declared before we ever got started. Jesus will be successful in his mission as a humiliated, suffering servant. There used to be a professional football team in St. Louis. And if my memory has me correct, they actually won the Super Bowl one year. And uh, as Super Bowls are designed, they're on Sunday nights. And uh, at the time, um, we had uh, Sunday evening service here in the building, and so um, uh, I, didn't, I didn't get to watch the Super Bowl live. I was preaching that night here at church. And yet, there used to be these things called VCRs, and I recorded the football game on my VCR. Um, and, but yet, as it turns out, before I ever got home and turned on the VCR, I already knew that the game was over and the score was finished. And by the way, I saw Mike Jones at Target the other day. Uh, he's the guy who made the tackle at the very end. You know, anyway, so I, I digress. So, no, it wasn't at Target. Where was it that I saw? But anyway, um, uh, oh, it was, uh, uh, it was at the restaurant. So, anyway. Um, anyway, he said hi to me. And anyway, anyway uh, but uh, he doesn't know me. But, but I know him because he made that last tackle. We won the Super Bowl. So, so anyway, uh, so before I ever watched the game, I already knew the outcome. Now, that resets how you watch a game, isn't it? I mean, you talk about being calm and cool and collect, like, ah, okay, incomplete pass, no big deal. Okay, 10-yard uh, gain for the, other, for the bad guys, no big deal. Uh, 
it, it, it didn't matter. And even that last catch, he caught it. He's at the end zone, but he's about that short. I already knew that because I already knew the outcome of the game. I already knew that we went. Well, since we are being told here that before Jesus ever shows up on this planet to do the task that he was sent to do, uh, while it involves suffering and humiliation, it also involves success and exaltation. You see, there's, 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 there's never been any doubt in the outcome of Jesus' saving work. It will unfold according to plan, a plan that was hatched between the Godhead before the foundations of the world, that a lamb would be slain for sinners, and in so doing, highlight the, the merciful grace of God while at the same time upholding the, the holy justice of God. Behold my servant, shall act wisely. And in particular, he goes on to say in verse 13, uh, he shall be high and lifted up, and he shall be exalted. Three terms that, that, uh, that reiterate and specify the success in this mission entailing exaltation of the suffering servant. So it is a mission of humiliation, and it is a mission of exaltation. And I'm not sure how to fully make sense of the three terms all clustered together there. Uh, meaning by that, is he, is he trying to describe something sequentially? Um, in other words, uh, this is the notion of um, he shall be um, high and lifted up and exalted. Is that referring to resurrection and ascension and uh, seated at the right hand, it, it, it could be. I, I just think he's clustering three terms together there to make it magnanimously clear. There's a sense in which, and part of why I believe that is there's a sense in which Jesus' exaltation is not simply that comes, not something, something that comes after his humiliation, but it is something that bleeds through even during his humiliation. So that even hanging on the cross, and if there's not a more humiliating way to suffer, but even on the cross, he is noted as king. He is ruling from the cross. He is exalted and lifted up at the cross. And even the notion of humiliation, in a sense, Jesus' humiliation hasn't been swept under a rug and done away with. When we read the book of Revelation in chapter 5, we are, we are awakened into the lamb who sits on the throne. But this lamb who sits on the throne is noted as the lamb who was slain. There is still marks of humiliation on our dear, exalted Jesus. That's the way he would have it. No, we are being emphatically underscored that he is the exalted one, even in his humiliation, 
to, to have impact on us today. He's high. He's lifted up. He's exalted. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18, and then on to 19 and 20 say, speaking of Jesus, and he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. What's the big deal about Jesus as the humiliated, suffering servant being exalted is that in our hearts and in our lives, those who know Jesus, those who trust in Jesus, those who have regard for Jesus, that he is seen in our hearts, cherished, worshiped, praised as high and lifted up and exalted, that we purpose to have Jesus as preeminent in every nook and cranny of our lives. He is preeminent, and yet the work of our daily lives, our thoughts, our desires, our emotions, our words, our behaviors, all ought to coalesce around this one heartbeat, and that is, oh Jesus, in the way that I think, in the way that I feel, in the way that I talk, in the way that I relate, and in the way that I behave, may, may you be seen for what you already are, the preeminent exalted one. Why? Because Colossians connects the dots, says, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. So why should Jesus be preeminent in our lives today? Because there's, there ain't nobody like him. Nobody else can say all the fullness of God dwells in him. But the second thing Colossians says, and, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of the cross. No one is like Jesus. No one has done what Jesus has done. Jesus, the wise servant of God, the one whom we regard as both humiliated for us and for our salvation, and the one who was successful and thus exalted in that mission. Now, let me come back to the first point in a little bit. Let me shift to the second point, because that's verse 14, and that really focuses us more, in a, in just for a moment, on the suffering and humiliation side. These are past tense words here. Uh, this is the, the shocking appearance of the suffering servant. And he says, as many were astonished at you, his appearance, speaking of Jesus, was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. He shall be exalted and high and lifted up, but he has been marred. The past tense. You see, the suffering servant will be humiliated. The suffering servant has been humiliated our Savior, Jesus, has been humiliated through physical torture and abuse. Jesus, for us and for our salvation, was physically devastated. 
It says there, um, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. People were, it says here, astonished to look at him. Actually, the, probably a stronger word could be inserted in there. People were appalled to look at him. It was horrible to look at him. It was horrifying to look at him. The shock at looking at the physical mistreatment of Jesus is so staggering that, that we would bear not, we, we don't want to look there for us and for our salvation. Among other things, it reminds us that our sin is no small dealy bob. Our sin required the beating and the bloodshed of Jesus to solve. Matthew 26 and 27 records for us various things that physically was, were perpetrated upon Jesus. He was spit upon. They spit in his face. They struck him. They struck him in the head with a stick. They slapped him. They mocked him. They stripped him. They flogged or scourged him with a whip that at the very end of that whip had fragments of bone and or metal, just ripping skin off of him. The chief priests, the temple guards, the Roman soldiers, all ganged up. It was a pile on, if you would. Pilate had him scourged. The soldiers scrunched a crown of thorns on his head. And I hadn't even gotten to the worst part yet. When we get there in the weeks to come and think about the process of how do you die through hanging on a cross. We think of the physical mistreatment, and, and that doesn't even, I suggest to you, doesn't even tell the half of the story, the, the spiritual absence of the goodness of God at that moment, taking upon himself and his body the very justice of God's wrath, that he cries out in the words penned in Psalm 22, but also echoed in Matthew 27, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We are describing an exalted one who was utterly humiliated beyond human recognition. And yet verse 15 jumps back to notions of exaltation. For it is in his humiliated state that he succeeds. It is in his humiliated state of suffering that he accomplishes his mission. Verse 15, so shall, we're back to future tense again, this is exaltation, so shall uh, he sprinkle many nations. Kings shall shut their mouths. 
we note of that, we are reminded of his success through the first statement in verse 15. He shall sprinkle. That's a, that's a rich Old Testament word. Uh, you, you wouldn't have to read the book of Leviticus very long. And besides, besides that, you probably don't want to read the book of Leviticus very long. But if you did want to read the book of Leviticus very long, it wouldn't be long before you'd bump into that word sprinkle. It's a ceremonial ritual term that Israel used to, uh, that spoke of God's work of cleansing, purifying uh, through the sacrificial system and arrangements, how God would cleanse his people from their sins. And yet what we're told here is that this, this one who is exalted and humiliated, he will sprinkle not just Israel, but many nations. Yeah. And that is a thank you, Lord. This, even the Revelation 5 tells us, and with your blood you have purchased us, and not only us, but the people from every tribe and language and nation. Oh, it was humiliating. He was beat to, to beyond recognition, and it was successful. Hebrews 9 tells us, For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of the heifer sanctify for purification of the flesh, how much more? Praise God! It took the, the Old Testament was just a temporary preview of a bigger thing arriving. The blood of bulls and goats just... Uh, painted the issue for us, and that is we need cleansing by shed blood. But how much more, the writer of Hebrews tells us, will the blood of Jesus, who through the eternal spirit, in other words, by the enablement of the spirit of God, through the, who the eternal spirit offered up to himself, offered up himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. In other words, what the writer of Hebrews clarifies for us is this notion of sprinkling, which means cleansing, means that we are cleansed not just in, in the sense of pardoned, and I don't want to take anything away from the glorious reality that we are pardoned, but that we are sprinkled clean by the blood of Jesus to not only secure a pardon, but to qualify us to serve him. He places his pardoned people in service. That's how powerful the blood of Jesus is. It doesn't just say, this wipes away the record of your sin debt before God, but this prepares you to be a fit, cleansed, prepared vessel to serve God. Do you, do you see where we're at in this process? Verse 14 says, he was hard to look at. He was beaten so severely. And yet what verse 15 has introduced us to, and yet while he's hard to look at, all who look at him shall be saved. Do you get that? 
You see, this, this morning, even though you're dressed up and you look like a church member, it, 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 it's, it is not that kind of stuff uh, that makes you and I right before a holy God. We, we do not fix ourselves up. We do not clean ourselves up. We do not make ourselves into some sort of meritorious rank of Christian. No, we are separated and cut off from God, each and every one of us, whether we belong to a church or don't belong belong to a church, whether we've been baptized or not baptized, whatever your state is, if you don't know this Jesus, you are still cut off. The wrath of God still hangs over you. God's condemnation is on you. God's curse is set on you. And yet, this morning, what I'm trying to say is that God has remedied that mess. He's remedied that mess by sending Jesus to be the servant who would be humiliated and exalted and all who look to the one who's hard to look at shall be saved. Sprinkling, cleansing, pardoning, preparation for service come to all who trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he says, going on about this success, Uh, Second part of verse 15, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. I would suggest that probably the full import of this statement is still future even to us. For when Jesus returns, we will see him in even a fuller state of exaltation. And right now, Psalm 2 tells us that the nations rage against God. The nations conspire to overthrow Jesus. And you know what God's response to that is? Psalm 2 tells us. (laughs) He laughs at the vain conspiracies of the nations who would conspire to overthrow King Jesus. Psalm 2 tells us that he will smash them with a rod of iron. And so when this passage says that kings shall shut their mouths, I would suggest to you that it's pertaining to those kings who have rejected the sprinkling blood of Jesus. And they will have nothing to say in their defense before the throne of God's judgment. That ought to guide us this week as we think about silly political processes. We think about wicked politicians and government leaders and we fret and we're upset and we're unsettled. Their mouths will be shut one day. (laughs) And anybody that can shut the mouth of a politician must be God. (laughs) And he will. He will. 
And yet, there's another thing that is stated here in this passage. At the end of verse 15, after it says, kings shall shut their mouths because of him. And I think what's unfolding next is unfolding even currently. I hear someone's alarm going off. For that which has not been told them, they see. And that which they have not heard, they understand. Now, that, that's, a, that's a fascinating statement. Those two statements are fascinating. I would suggest to you that, and since they find their meaning in that passage back in Isaiah chapter 6, when, when God dispatches Isaiah to the Jews to proclaim to them, uh, to whom will I send? Here I am, Lord, send me. Well, great. And the Lord explains to them, now I'm going to send you um, to a people who are hardened. They're hardened because he has judged them in that hardened state. He says there in Isaiah chapter 6, these are a people that um, they keep on hearing, but they do not understand. They keep on seeing, but they do not perceive, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. He says, this is not a season for them to turn and be healed. This is a season for judgment to fall upon them, and I have hardened them in their unbelief. My point is that, praise God, what we are seeing described here is a reversal of that hardening. In fact, Paul uses this passage in Romans 15, 21 as the justification for why he wants to go to people who do not know Jesus and proclaim Jesus to people who do not know Jesus. Because since Jesus is the humiliated, exalted one, then the proclamation of his gospel is a transformation formative proclamation so that Paul would say in Romans 15 21 those who have never been told of him will see those who have never heard of him will understand in other words as Paul would say at the start of Romans uh, for uh, I am not ashamed of the gospel it is the power of God into salvation to the Jew first and then to the Gentile imagine that whether it's Paul, we would give it to Paul, but give it to someone like you and I. Uh, like when you and I go to someone and begin to try to tell them about who Jesus is and what he has done, we bumble and fumble our way through those explanations and through that conversation, and yet God is in the middle of that conversation as we're trying to explain Jesus to people, and boy, what a good week to remind us of this as we will be explaining the gospel to children this week. As we bumble and fumble our way through that, God can give understanding. God can open eyes. The one who is hard to look at, but who must be looked to the Spirit of God can give abilities and desires and inclinations to look to Jesus and live. And the reason why that hardening is reversed is because that hardening is a result of judgment. 
And Jesus has taken away our judgments. Zephaniah 3.15 says, the Lord has taken away the judgments against you. And you know what he did with them when he took them away from you? He placed them upon himself. He bore up under those judgments so that the wrath of God was dumped on him so that the wrath of God would be abated from us. And any who turn to Jesus and trust in him, that, that, as, as we're explaining this to people, the Spirit of God is able to release them from their hardened judgment of obstinate unbelief and blindness. That through our message of Jesus, God opens eyes. God who said that light shine in the darkness can shine in our hearts to give us an image of the likeness of the glory of God in the face of Jesus. That's not you and I spiffing up our presentation. That's you and I in humility, explaining the humiliated, exalted Lord. Turn to Jesus. Turn to the one who has taken away your judgment. He's the only one qualified to do so. And there is nobody in this universe other than him who has done so. There is no other name given by which we must be saved. Trust Jesus. Turn to him. Father, we thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you for his appearing to us. And yet as we think about what became of his appearance, we, we are dismayed that our sin would result in such heinous torture. And yet, Father, while we feel the shame of such sin, we gratefully run to Jesus who has taken that shame upon himself, humiliated for those who deserved to be humiliated, exalted so that all who turn and trust in Jesus shall also be exalted. We thank you for Jesus. We thank you for the grace that he has shed, shown to us. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and sing this song.